Christmas is just around the corner, and so are the customary assaults on this sacred season. For a full report, Catholic League president Dr. Bill Donahue is here. And with Advent in full swing, I have a merry and bright musical surprise for you. The World Over begins right now. Now, Raymond Arroyo. A warm welcome to all of you joining us in the United States and the world over. If you'd like to comment on tonight's show, send me an X post. I'm at Raymond Arroyo. Lots to cover. First, some news. The Vatican is easing rules on the preservation of ashes following cremation. In a statement by the Vatican's doctrinal chief, Cardinal Victor Manuel Fernandez, and approved by Pope Francis, Permission is now granted for a small portion of the deceased's cremated ashes to be stored in a place that was significant to them, rather than in a church or a cemetery. In 2016, the Vatican said that ashes had to be kept in sacred places and could not be kept at home, neither to be divided by family members nor scattered to the wind. The Vatican is saying those instructions remain valid, but added that relatives may store, quote, a minimal part of the ashes of their relative in a place of significance for the family and the deceased. The church had forbade cremation for centuries, first allowing the practice in 1963. Pope Francis announced this week in an interview that he's made burial arrangements and intends to be interred at St. Mary Major Basilica in Rome. In a departure from his immediate predecessors, who have been buried close to the tomb of St. Peter, Pope Francis will join seven other popes who have been buried at St. Mary Major, the last being Clement IX, who reigned from 1667 to 1669. Francis said his tomb is already prepared and that he had made a promise to the Blessed Virgin Mary to be buried in the Basilica. Pope Francis turns 87 this week and has been experiencing poor health in recent days. And a programming note, uh, we attributed last week uh, during the broadcast a report on the status of Bishop Strickland to LifeSite News. Well, their story had asserted that Bishop Strickland had been banned from saying Mass in his former diocese of Tyler, Texas. That turned out not to be the case. According to Bishop Strickland himself, he had not been banned from saying Mass. However, he did say that Bishop Joe Vasquez, the Bishop of Austin and temporary administrator of the Diocese of Tyler, did suggest that he leave the diocese. We'll continue to monitor this story. And Christmas is nearly here. And what would the season be without the usual attacks and often outright mockery of one of the most sacred days on the Christian calendar? Here to share his thoughts on Christmas 2023 is president of the Catholic League, Dr. Bill Donahue. Bill, I, I want to start with some of what we're seeing across the nation. Uh, in the Iowa State House, visitors are treated to this image. It's a satanic statue with an altar before it, complete with candles. The satanic temple who erected this thing is obviously capitalizing on religious plurality in public places. What else do you think is at play here? Uh, quite frankly, it's abortion. And that may sound surprising to some people. What does abortion have to do with uh, the satanic temple out of Detroit? It has everything to do with it. 
I've been, I've been engaged with them in conversations for years. Their idea of liberty is, first and foremost, the right to kill a child in a, in a, in a mother's womb. They are, they are the most vicious supporters of abortion on demand in the United States. Sure, there's a lot of other people out there who vote that way, but people might be surprised. Look into the Satanic Temple, go onto their website, and, and, and I will be proven right. This group is just, they, they are bloodthirsty to kill the children. Hmm. But why erect these statues? I mean, clearly, you know, in the midst of Christmas trees and, and creches, they have this, you know, uh, statue of, of the devil, complete with a little altar. Why that at Christmas time? Well, because it's Christmas time. Look, the First, con- first Amendment is conditioned on time, place and manner. If they want to have their, their, their little anti-religious statement, let them have it at a time other than Christmas. That's what's normally been done in this country. Now we're at the point where we don't, time, place, and matter doesn't seem to matter anymore, but it should. This is an anti-statement. They're pro-abortion and they're anti-Christian. And obviously they choose December. They don't choose February, Black History Month. They don't choose June, uh, Gay Transgender Month. They always choose December, which is Christmas month. Uh, there's a vicious element within these people and, and, and we need to call them out for it. It's, uh, look, they, they know what they're doing. They say, well, we don't believe in Satan as a religious figure, theistic. They believe in, in Satan for everything he stands for. And that's why they call themselves Satanists. They're playing a game with us. Mm. There's a Christmas tree festival uh, hosted every year at the National Railroad Museum, Bill, in Green Bay, Wisconsin. Some 66 organizations are represented this year. But only six of those are sponsored by Christian groups. Two of the trees are creating controversy, however, one by, you guessed it, a satanic group and the other by an LGBT organization. Now, Bill, the Railroad Museum spokesman says the inclusion of uh, the Satanist and LGBT displays, uh, this is part of being inclusive. Is it inclusive now, to your eye? Now, it, it, if, 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 if a racist had an anti-black uh, demonstration or portray, uh, portrayal of Martin Luther King in February, they wouldn't call that inclusion. If you attack gays in June, they wouldn't call that inclusion. This is just a game. Look, inclusion and diversity are propagandist tools. They're weapons used by the left to beat down traditional Americans. And they play this game on the college campuses. They say that Christians can't uh, have their own Christian leaders of their clubs. Can you, can you imagine a gay group has to have a straight guy as, as the head of their group? Uh, no, or, or a white guy as head of the Black Student Union? No, they use these as a, as a tool. That's just simply a lie. What this is, is about is, is, is watering down. It's neutering Christmas. And that's why they try to say it represents everybody. What they'd like to do is censor us. They did try that, you know, for years, because I fought the censorship for mm-hmm. years. When they lost on that, the next thing to do is to go parallel and start just flooding the public square with their own satanic and, and transgender uh, 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 props and displays. Uh, the whole thing is demonic as far as I'm concerned. In New York City, uh, your organization, the Catholic League, premiered a new digital billboard to celebrate Christmas and religious diversity. We'll put it up on the screen. Tell us about the billboard, where it's located, and what is the message you're hoping to send here, Bill? Yeah, I came up with the idea a few months ago. I said, let's do something positive. And, you know, we already have our nativity scene in, in Central Park uh, in front of the Plaza Hotel. We, we've had it every year since 1993 or four or five. And, and, but we haven't done anything in Times Square. 
And I just walked over there from, from my office to, to come over here to do the show. And I, and I only waited about seven or eight minutes and, and it up it came. Yeah, it's on, it's on Broadway in Times Square between 44th and 45th Street on the east side of the street, right above uh, street level. It's big. It's digital. It's a picture of uh, our Blessed Mother and Joseph and Jesus. And at the top, it says, celebrate religious diversity. And then it says, celebrate Christmas. And it's got the Catholic League logo. We're trying to make a statement. If you believe in, in diversity, you should, do, you should believe in diversity as it was initially understood, pluralism, but pluralism mm. within the context of a Judeo-Christian society. And what I'm saying is that since you'd like to censor us, we're going to play the diversity card against you. And we're also going to say that if you, you have to understand, everything has roots. And our country is rooted in the Judeo-Christian heritage and ethos. And, and so it's, it's that kind of a positive statement. We're getting some very nice comments and people taking photos of it. And uh, I, I, it's, you know, everything else is selling liquor and cars and whatnot and clothes. And that's all hmm. fine and good. But we're making a Christmas statement right in the heart of Times Square. Hmm. In addition to the billboard, and you mentioned this, the Catholic League puts up, and I love when I walk on the Upper East Side, uh, there's the nativity scene uh, right there outside of Central Park, you know, on Fifth, on Fifth Avenue. Um, it's a life-size display, as you can see from these photos. Uh, you received a permit from the city, as you have for decades. What's been the response of New Yorkers and tourists, uh, Bill? Any, any complaints, any outrage over this? When we first put it up back in the mid-90s, there were complaints. But we reminded mm. people that we didn't put it outside City Hall, which is public property. We want to a, a piece of public property which is regarded as a public forum for artists, musicians, for people who want to voice any kind of idea. And the world's largest menorah is in the exact same spot right behind us, and that's fine right. with me. I'm all in favor of that. But so you can't stop us. We picked our spot intentionally so that they, New York City couldn't, uh, by, by, by law, by, by constitutional law, they couldn't stop us. Uh, I didn't put it in a, in a municipal building or even uh, next to uh, the, the city hall because that would give them some leverage to censor us. So that's why we were able to do this. And yes, we get the permit. And while we got some uh, blowback initially, people love it. And that's where people line up to take pictures, particularly the tourists. Mm, yeah, no, I've, I've seen it myself. In fact, you know, Bill, you mentioned the world's largest menorah that's right there in front of the plaza with your nativity. And I have to say, perhaps this year more than any other, I was walking out of St. Patrick's a couple of weeks ago, and uh, there was a Jewish family that recognized me. You know, the, the father had a yarmulke on and one of the boys. And, uh, and they said, oh, Mr. Royal, Merry Christmas. And I said, well, happy Hanukkah. And, they, and we, we hugged. And it was kind of a beautiful moment, I thought, one of those only in New York moments. But given the, uh, the Hamas-Israeli war, we are seeing places in the country, Bill, like Williamsburg, Virginia, where they actually banned a menorah display to avoid looking like, quote, it was a celebration of Judaism. Your reaction to that? Yeah. So we can't celebrate Judaism on Hanukkah. It's okay to say that we can kill all Jews. That's free speech on the college campuses. Uh, look, th th nobody really believes this unless you're deranged. We know what's going on. There's a lot of Jew hatred in this country. There's a lot of hatred against Christians. And, and they'll use any kind of weapon that they, they want. Uh, even Newsom, uh, the guy out in California, Governor Newsom, mm -hmm. he wouldn't even uh, allow the Christmas trees up there because uh, that was too controversial. 
What, what, I mean, why is it always us, the traditionalists in our country, Jews, Catholics, Muslims, uh, Protestants, why is it always our voice that has to be censored? It's never the voice of the transgender, uh, you know, the LGBTQ plus, 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 plus type people. It's never, it's never, uh, uh, you know, so Antifa can do whatever they want. And these people, no, it's a one way street. And uh, what, what, what is surprising to me as a lifelong New Yorker, I mean, did spend 15 years in, in Pittsburgh, but I can tell you, I've never seen New York more anti-Semitic in my entire life because Jews and Catholics dominate New York. Protestants are a minority. And, and I, I, the, the whiplash against Jews is something which, which I find outrageous and I've never witnessed anything like it. Yeah. Well, why do you think, Bill, there is this uh, impulse to simply cancel things to basically appease, in this case, uh, pro-Palestinian, pro-Hamas mobs and protesters, that you have that sensitivity in Sacramento, you have it in Williamsburg, Virginia. It doesn't seem to exist in New York City. In fact, Adam said he was going to double the patrols around the menorahs. And I said, I hope he doubles the patrol around your nativity scene as well. Well, New York does have a very strong Jewish population, so it's a little more difficult to, do, to pull that off here. However, don't forget, they just had the lighting of the Christmas tree in, in Rockwell Center recently, and they had a massive yeah. amount of cops who had to stop the uh, pro-Palestinian terrorist uh, from trying to, to uh, crash the entire proceedings. Now, it's interesting, Adams... Uh, allowed the cops to do their job there because it's all about money. NBC had to make their money. They had share on and whatnot. It was just some other time. They, they, these <laughs> lunatics take over the Brooklyn Bridge. They take over the Manhattan Bridge. They, 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 they trash things. They, they, they go after the cops. There's been a lot of violence. A lot of it's been unreported by these uh, Palestinian terrorists. And that's what we have to call them. They are terrorists. A terrorist is somebody who attacks innocent people. And that's what they're doing. They're not attacking people who are fighting back against them. It's, it's, it's one way. I don't know of a single instance where Jews have just decided to go into uh, a, a, palace, a, 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 a Muslim neighborhood and start thrashing things. It's always the other way around. And I'm not saying most Muslims are doing this. They're not. But there's a big group of people with the pro-Palestinians uh, and they have hatred in their heart. When you walk around with a Nazi insignia, uh, uh, you know, a, an enormous Nazi insignia, I've seen them walking the streets of New York. We know what side you're on. We know that you're Nazis. You want to be known as Nazis and we believe you. Hmm. Bill, before we run out of time, uh, at the Senate hearings with FBI Director Christopher Wray, a new report was revealed that shows or seems to show that the Bureau of Investigation probed traditional Catholics, and that probe was much wider than originally believed. Senator Josh Hawley confronted Ray about priests and church personnel being asked to inform on parishioners. Watch. Let's talk a little bit about the FBI's egregious targeting of Catholic Americans. You have repeatedly been asked about the memo generated by the Richmond Field Office, we now know in collaboration with multiple other field offices about recruiting sources in Catholic churches, you have repeatedly said that no human sources were approached. But now we know that, in fact, FBI agents did approach a priest and a choir director to ask them to inform on parishioners. Bill, you've been watching this story since it first broke What do you make of the government's focus on traditional Catholic groups and why focus on them? Well, you know, I read the entire report, which which was released on December the 4th. And unlike many people in the media who read an executive summary, I read it from top to bottom. 
and I commend uh, Senator Josh Hawley. However, my takeaway is a little bit different in terms of emphasis. They went after not just traditional Catholics. You, if you were, and they, they said this literally, if you are pro-life, pro-family, and if you believe in the biological basis of race, of, of, of uh, uh, sex and gender, you are a domestic threat. So I believe mm. that men and women are different. I believe in the family. I believe that we should protect the life of the child in the mother's womb. That makes me a domestic ter terrorist. By the way, they didn't go after dissident Catholics. They went after people mm. who are practicing Orthodox Catholics. And it's not just the Latin mass people. That would be bad enough. But they extended it, as I knew they would, to mainline Catholics. Now, I, I wrote to Senator Jim Jordan, head of the House Judiciary right. Committee, five times this year, I want to commend him for that because Mike McDonald, our director of communications, has been in touch with his staff, and they're very appreciative of our efforts. And, and because I want to know this, why was the Southern Poverty Law Center, the Atlantic and Salon, leaned on by the FBI for dirt about the Catholic Church? I, and here's the real story. This has been missed by people because they just read the executive summary. They wanted to go national. Yes, it started in Richmond, mm -hmm. the Richmond field office, and they got help from Milwaukee and from L.A. and Portland. But they wanted to take this nationally. That's what's in the report. So it, it, what, this was just an experiment to choose one place. And uh, we have to purge the FBI of its anti-Catholic cell group. And I'm not condemning all FBI people. I am simply saying there's an anti-Catholic cell group within the FBI. It needs to be purged. And by the way, the report, which came out December 4th, said it's still ongoing. They haven't taken back anything. And no one's been fired. Hmm. Well, we will leave it there, Bill. But it is a, it's a really troubling story. I'm glad you delved into it and shared it with the audience tonight. And Merry Christmas. You can visit CatholicLeague.org for more. Thank you, Bill. Merry Christmas. With Advent upon us, I wanted to share a little Yuletide treasure with you. While I've been on the road during concerts, I often tell audiences that line from Deck the Holes is really the entire reason I decided to do a Christmas album this year. The line goes, follow me in merry measure while I tell of Yuletide treasure. These Christmas carols and hymns, even some of the contemporary songs of Christmas, are really treasures that I decided to unpack. So I did a lot of research into the backstories of each of these songs, who wrote them, the context. And I'm so pleased that all of you have made the album Christmas Merry and Bright the number one jazz release and bestseller at Amazon and Barnes and & Noble and landed us on the Billboard Holiday and Jazz Charts. But mostly I love that you've made this music part of your family's Advent and Christmas celebrations. I thought it might be fun to share some of what I discovered about these songs and our take on them. So I give you Christmas Merry and Bright behind the scenes. One, two, one, two, three. I've always loved Christmas music. This is my favorite time of year. It's my favorite music ever. And full confession, I listen to Christmas music year round. Hark the herald angels 
What I love most about Christmas music, it's eternal. It touches the past, the present, and the future. Your great-grandparents were singing many of these songs. We're singing these songs today, and our children's children will be singing them tomorrow. So there's something timeless about these particular songs, what they mean, the memories they evoke, and I think most importantly, the feelings they, that well up within us whenever we hear them. Joy to the world, the Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ. My audience mostly knows me from television or my books. What they probably don't know is in my early life, I was trained as an actor, I did a lot of musicals, and I sang. And then for many years I didn't. So when I was approached to do this project, I kind of backed off for a minute. I was a little hesitant. But after looking at the repertoire and thinking, what, what could I do unique here? What could I offer to these songs and to the audience? I thought, okay, let's go on this adventure. I loved it. It was, it was like getting in touch with a part of myself that um, I guess I had left behind or thought I'd left behind. It's never too late. As anybody who's followed my literary career or read any of my books knows, there's a theme that runs through all of them, which is this. I take something you think you know, and I show you a different angle on it. That lights it up in a whole new way. So I went through each of these tunes, and I basically did a deep dive into each of them. Where did they come from? What do they mean? And I have to tell you, I was stunned by some of what I discovered. Jingle Bells was one of those discoveries. Jingle bells, jingle bells, jingle all the way. Oh, what fun it is to ride in a one-horse open sleigh. It was written by a guy named James Lord Pierpont, who was actually the uncle of J.P. Morgan. And Pierpont was, well, how do I put this lightly? A bit of a womanizer, we think. He wrote this song, which was originally titled One Horse Open Sleigh. He wrote it in a tavern in Medford, Massachusetts. Now, Medford was a town at the time known for rum and drag racing sleighs in the snow down the main street. A day or two ago, I thought I'd take a ride. And soon this Fanny Bright was seated by my side. This song is really about drag racing with a side of rum and girls in the snow. We cast the song in that way. So when you hear it, it's propulsive, it's a little crazed at times, but the jingle bells, when you're in the one-horse open sleigh with the girl, you got to ring bells to let people know you're coming because it's dark out. Jingle Bells takes on a slightly different character when you see it that way. So we had to do it in that historical setting.
want another ride? <laughs> That's it. To me, Christmas is a classic sound. So when we were thinking, how should we approach this album? I knew I wanted a big band feel and sound. Kevin Koska was our arranger on this project. And Kevin, if you don't know his name, you certainly know his work. Kevin Koska arranged and orchestrated The Greatest Showman, The Dark Knight, The Live Jungle Book, The Live Lion King. But his background and his love is jazz. We brought these songs to him, and in record time, he turned out some incredible sizzling hot at times and very tender beautiful arrangements I heard the bells on Christmas day their old familiar carols play I heard the bells is one of my favorite songs of all time it's a three-act play that touches on the dark side of Christmas not everybody has a happy joyous Christmas. Some people are plagued with depression and sadness during Christmas, and I wanted to speak to that in the album, and though it's called Merry and Bright, the song gets Merry and Bright. It finds hope on the other side of tragedy. Peace on earth, goodwill to men. It was written by Longfellow, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, the great American poet, He had lost his wife in a fire. She caught fire in their house. He tried to put out the flames. She died, but he burned his face and his body terribly trying to put her out. The year this song happens, his son runs off to the Civil War without telling him, comes back home on a stretcher the day before Christmas, paralyzed from a bullet that went through one shoulder and out the other and hit his spine. So Wadsworth is sitting in his office and he hears down the block bells of the church and he is depressed and very miserable and in despair and in despair i bowed my head there is no peace on earth i said for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth Then there's a bridge. He listens to the bells, and suddenly hope falls upon him. And he says, Then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail, with peace on earth, goodwill to men. We've added a verse here at the end that I took from the original poem. It was not part of the song, but it felt right to add that as a fourth verse because it's about us. And how if you listen closely, you can still hear those bells and find that hope. I love that about this song. Open your heart and hear your part of peace on earth
in the heart of the French Quarter. And there's a wonderful little theater in New Orleans, Le Petit Theater. Sound-wise, it was perfect, and it fit all of us. Don't tell it on the mountain, over the hills, and everywhere. This band, these are like the super players of New Orleans. Many of these guys have been playing together for 30, 40 years. They know each other so well and gelled so quickly. I've really never seen anything like it. Most of the cats in the band have a lot of history of working together over the past decades. So when this collection of musicians come together, it's uh, instantaneous connection and the music just flows because we not only know each other musically, but we know each other personally. The music itself is expressive. A lot of the songs have a lot of depth to them, um, a lot of history behind them, and a lot of stories within them. So I really think the, the way they're arranged really helps to bring those stories to life. And then that coupled with the band, I mean, it, it feels really good. We made a decision early on, as much as we could, that we would record live with the band in the room. Now that is often not the case today. Usually they lay down the tracks with the band and the singer is in an isolation booth weeks later recording to tracks. I didn't want to do that. That feeling that you get, there is a rich crackle in the room. You can hear it on those recordings. That style of music has a certain energy to it. It's very soulful, swinging. There are great big bands all around the world, but big bands in New Orleans have a different thing. So I enjoy that. We need to capture the energy and the spirit and the goosebumps that the listener gets while listening to this type of music. <laughs> Raymond has been fun. He knows exactly what he wants. He has very high standards for himself, which is really all we can ask for. He wants to get it right. You know, all of us want to get it right, and he's, he's right in there with it, which is, which is killing. It's really good. His musical instincts are phenomenal. He's just a character. He's fun. You know, he makes it fun for everybody. You know, when he walked in the room, he has this uh, uh, bigger-than-life charisma that just kind of takes over the room. He's a great singer, a uh, really, really nice guy. Um, <laughs> just, is he a comedian? Because I mean, he cracks me up. We told it. What I love about this medley, which is the first Noel and We Magi of Orient are. Now, people look at that and they go, now, Raymond Arroyo, why are you doing a medley of the first Noel, which came from Miracle Plays? Miracle Plays were plays staged, again, straining at the mystery of the nativity. These things go back to the third and fourth century. That's where the first Noel originated. And Noel is news. So it's the first news, the first good news. Noel, 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 Noel. Born is the king of Israel. I love that the first Noel and the song previously known as We Three Kings 
all reference a bright light, a great light that drew the shepherds and then the wise men to the Christ child. And to the earth it gave a great light, and so it continued both day and night. What we did here is I changed the lyrics of We Three Kings to We Magi of Orient are. Now, why might I do that? The Gospels don't reference kings. There were no kings. They were wise men. They were magi. We magi of Orient are bearing gifts we traverse afar. It is a driving, exciting journey for these wise men. And I love that the arrangement captures the joy and the fascination and the awesome, incredible explosion of light that these men are drawn to. And I think all these songs are reaching for that mystery, reaching for that indescribable moment when God becomes man. And every generation contributes something new to that mysterious yearning to understand what happened 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem. Boy, did the NOLA players do an incredible job on this. It is an incredible musical moment. Happy New Year. Good tidings to you. What I could do is, we j- I just do the top of this as me. We wish you a Merry Christmas. We wish you a Merry Christmas. We wish you a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. And I start here and we bring the trio treatment thing in here. Good tidings to you wherever you are. We could do that. Now that's something we could do. There are certain voices of Christmas that I have always loved. Some I was honored to meet. And I thought, wouldn't it be great if I could somehow honor them on this album? So we decided to do We Wish You a Merry Christmas as sort of a caroling squad of very familiar voices, some of whom I hope you recognize. Here's my little tribute, my little merry and bright Christmas gift to you. So one, two, or one, two, three, four. There's some voices of Christmas that I've always loved. Nat King Cole, Bing Crosby, Dean Martin, and Frank Sinatra. And I'd like to honor them with a song. So, Kevin arranged really five different songs within one. We wish you a Merry Christmas. We wish you a Merry Christmas. We wish you a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. We Wish You a Merry Christmas is one of those songs people think, oh, this is just a ditty. Well, it has a great historic root. In England, from 1647 to 1660, Oliver Cromwell outlawed the singing of carols and Christmas carols in England. Following that, carolers used to go door to door. People who were were churchgoers the poor ones would go to the doors of the rich people who also believed, and they would sing these Christmas carols to keep the traditional carols 
alive. We wish you a Merry Christmas is one of those songs. It's part of the Christmas celebration, part of the communal cheer of Christmas. We wish you a Merry Christmas. We wish you a Merry Christmas. This was my way of honoring these great singers who kept beautiful music of the season alive. And to be a part of that now myself, mm, it's incredible. Did you like? Thank you. Thank you, Mike. We'll cut the next album. Oh, there you go. Rudolph the Red Nose Reindeer had a very shiny nose. And if you ever saw it, you would think he was a cat Rudy the Red Nose Reindeer, you go down in Hillary. Go, go, go. We have our next album. <laughs> Silent night. Holy night, all is calm, all is bright. Mike Esnault was not only our conductor, he's our pianist. And there is one track on this album we didn't intend to do, and that is Silent Night. I've always loved this song. It's a tender prayer, really, to me. And I thought, why don't we just do it, just you and me, Mike backing me on the piano, and I did the vocals. It's the only track on the album that's just piano and vocals. Sleep in heavenly peace. It's so tender, you don't want to disturb it. It's, it's sleep in heavenly peace. You don't do that with trumpets. Christ the Savior is born. Oh, he's here. Jose, you made it. How you doing? Good. When I knew I was doing a Christmas album, Merry and Bright, one of the first people who popped into mind was Jose Feliciano. Feliz Navidad. Oye, Feliz Navidad. Oye, Feliz Navidad. Jose is an international voice of Christmas, and his Feliz Navidad is one of the most downloaded songs of the season. People love it. Not only did he agree to come and be a guest on the album, Jose agreed to do a new arrangement. This was a song that I wrote to venerate the Savior. Hmm. And uh, that, that was the most important thing to me on that. And part of it was commemorating being in Puerto Rico as a kid, right? Yeah. During Christmas. Uh, being there with my folks and enjoying the rum, the pasteles, uh, you call them tamales. Yes, we do. What I love about our version of Feliz Navidad is it brings in a bit of that memory of Puerto Rico and your childhood and then just puts a fresh spin on a classic. 
Jose did an incredible flamenco solo that I just love. To sit across in a recording studio from a legend like Jose Feliciano for me was just, what an honor. I think people will love it. I dare you not to sing along. <laughs> I love the togetherness of Christmas, the warmth of Christmas, the memories of Christmas, and I wanted to capture all of that in this album. Singing carols, stringing popcorn, making footprints in the snow. There is a particular song that I do on the album, Christmas Memories, which is rarely recorded. It was written by Don Costa. Don Costa was Frank Sinatra's orchestrator and producer. Costa only wrote 11 songs. One of them was Christmas Memories. And Alan and Marilyn Bergman wrote such tender and sweet lyrics for this song. So we did Christmas Memories in our own way. Cookies baking in the kitchen, cards and ribbons everywhere. It remains a favorite because every time I hear the bridge of the song, I weep. There's a lyric that goes in the middle of the song. We had a way of making Christmas morning as merry as can be. I close my eyes and see shining faces of all the children who now have children of their own. And whenever I hear that lyric, this happens. We had a way of making Christmas morning as merry as can be. I close my eyes and see shiny faces of all the children who now have children of their own. Because I'm moving to that place where I see my own children getting married, about to have their own families. My parents have gone through this already. And it is wonderful and beautiful at Christmas to see you go on, your family goes on, and you gather around these traditions you so love. And that's what Christmas is all about. So it's one of my favorite tunes ever. And oh, the joy of waking Christmas morning, the family around the tree. I do it with my daughter. My daughter sang in the bridge with me. And it only deepens, I think, the joy and the drama of the song. And it's so beautiful. It's a neglected classic. Very sweet. Nice. I can only describe this project as an explosion of joy. Deck the halls with boughs of holly, fa la 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 la. Tis the season to be jolly. We wanted to remind people of the cheerful, wonderful, joyous, bright parts of the Christmas season 
At a time in the world when, frankly, we focus on division and differences and hatred, I thought it important for us to take a breath at Christmas and remember the joyous and the merry and the bright. It's my little contribution to the music and wonder of Christmas. I'm so grateful to Jonathan Evans for shooting and editing that. And you can get your copy of Christmas, Merry and Bright, the album at Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Apple Music, Spotify, the EWTN catalog, wherever you get your music. And join me on the remaining dates of my concert tour. Friday, December 15th, I'll be in Cleveland with Frankie Avalon and the grand finale at the Ryman Auditorium in Nashville. On Thursday, December 21st, with the legendary Jose Feliciano, I hope you will come out. Bring your families. I think you're going to enjoy this. The audiences that we've performed it for have just been over the moon. I, and I have to tell you, I am, I am filled with joy just doing it for these people. I mean, uh, it, it's, it's just been an incredible experience. So, Nashville, I expect to see you all at the Ryman on the 21st. Go to RaymondArroyoChristmas.com for links and tickets. And please tell your friends and family. Finally, he's a composer, arranger, conductor, and producer. His orchestrations have been featured in such blockbusters as The Greatest Showman, The Lion King, The Dark Knight, Jungle Book. He's done arrangements and orchestrations for over 120 movies. And he's worked with legendary Hollywood film composers like Hans Zimmer. I spoke with him recently about the arrangements he did for the album and much more. Here's an encore of my interview with Kevin Koska. Kevin, thanks for being here. Uh, before we get to the arrangements that you did for, for Mary and Bright, I want to talk a little bit about your background. You grew up in Seattle. Um, you were raised Catholic. Tell me a little bit about your experience growing up and how did you discover music and your talent for it? Did you come from a musical family? Yes, I am the youngest of six kids, and all of us played piano, violin, and my parents were both musicians as well. And so everyone was, wow. you know, I was the youngest. Everyone was playing some instrument. By the time I was in kindergarten or first grade, I went to the piano, and I just assumed that I could just read the music and play what was there. So I had to go. My dad was in the garage building something, and I went and brought the music and said, what is this? How do we play it? You know, how does this work? And then went and set out the piano, and he showed me some stuff. And suddenly a week or two later, I was enrolled in piano lessons. And then... Studied ever since kindergarten. Wow. Now, now you've said also, I read in interviews, that your family were mass goers every week and that your father was really the anchor of the family. How did that faith and your faith influence and inform not only the music but the arrangements you now create? Do they have an influence? Well, uh, it totally has an influence because when you're raised... Uh, in a Catholic family, obviously you're going to mass every week and the music is a big part of it. And religion is a huge mm. part. You know, music and religion practically go together. And it's mentioned in the Bible hundreds of times. And, mm -hmm. you know, all of, the, all of the major composers wrote masses, you know, even requiems and tremendous amount of music was written. You know, Bach, all of his music was practically written for the church. And so growing up Catholic, right. you know, it's just something that's in your... It's, it's within the faith, and, you know, you go, and, you, and as the Greeks said, to sing is to pray twice. 
you know, so music has always been there, and I've been studying it, and eventually, when I was in junior high, I met a very famous arranger by the name of Vic Schoen. He did all the arrangements for the Andrews yeah. Sisters, and I studied with him for two and a half years, and I learned a tremendous amount from him, oh. and I was his only student, and he, but he, he did movies for Bing Crosby and Bob Hope and Danny Kaye, you know, the, remember the court jester? He, he oh, did yeah, that score, movie. yeah. I want to talk to you, Kevin, about the arrangements you did for, for my Christmas Mary and Bright album. Um, and I have to tell you, I had a ball recording it with the band in New Orleans, and we just had a performance over the weekend in Dallas. It's such a joy to sing these arrangements. I think they're even better live. But one of the saxophonists, the guy who's been playing for like 35 or 40 years, I remember when he first opened the arrangement to deck the halls, and you sent all the music in a big box. And he opened it up, and he smiled, and he looked down the line, and he said, these are old school. Where did you get this stuff? <laughs> Was that intentional, <laughs> Kevin? And, and, what, and he, he meant the highest compliment by that. He said, these, this is old school. Well, you know, I've been taught to do things in a certain way. When you, when you study with the people that I've studied with and you get involved in the boss and pops, there's a standard. It's, it's the standard of how things are done, the way the parts look, the orchestrations, the way you put the, everything together. So when you're recording with a band, everything's got to be done smoothly because it's, it's all time and money. You book musicians for a certain amount of time. You don't have them for two weeks. You have them for six hours a day for two days, and that adds up. It's just like the same thing with a film. There's pre-production, production, and post-production. You, you burn up most of your money in production, but that's why... They only, it takes a month to make a movie where you could be in pre-production for two years or ten years. But with a, with a recording session, you only have two days, and that's where you spend most of your money, and you want to get the best musicians possible. And when everything is, you know, when everything is done in the music first, where it's clear, it makes sense, and everything is readable, it makes it very smooth. And when the musicians enjoy good music and the parts are great, this, they, they, they st stand taller in their seats. And it makes the session yeah. go smoother. They enjoy it more. Well, and, and, and what I love about it is there's a complexity to it for the, for the musicians. But for the listener, it's this rich, full experience. And I just love the sound of a big band. And so when I first heard the arrangements played full out, it just, you know, it takes your breath away when you hear particularly a new arrangement. And, you know, the, the note I've gotten, Kevin, from so many people all over the country who've gotten uh, Marion Bright... They, the, the, and it's a consistent note. I also heard it in Dallas. They said this feels like it's been around forever, but it's entirely new. And that's such a that's really a testament to your to your beautiful arrangements and all of us trying to you know fit in and accommodate. I want to give people a little taste of the album. Just listen to this. Jingle bells, jingle bells, jingle all the way. Hark the herald angels sing. The particular arrangements I love are Jingle Bells and that Hark the Herald Angels Sing, Kevin. Give me a sense. When we talked before you, you had arranged anything, um, we discussed that backstory. And I, I'd sent you some of my research on the backstory of Jingle Bells. But the arrangement you sent, there are, there, you can see the pictures musically as you listen to it. They're simply incredible. How do you prepare to create an arrangement like that? 
Well, every commission is different. And it's funny, Monica, our friend and producer, she sent me a list, like a three-page list that I think you created where you yeah. added all these... <laughs> All these, you described how you wanted. It's funny, I read them and it's like, it, and you're describing like a, I can't even put into words the descriptions you use because it was, it puts a smile in my face and I'm like, and you're, the, 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 the warmth of the, the happiness of the, the moment and I want to have this serene, beautiful, and, and, yeah. <laughs> and I'm, try, I'm looking at these words and I'm trying to translate. You have to think, what's he looking for here? What is this? Right. What is this about? How do we create this in a picture? And I remember listening to an interview with Nelson Riddle, because everyone always asks about Nelson mm. Riddle and Frank Sinatra, because that was one of the greatest collaborations ever, because those arrangements are timeless. And you bet. Nelson, Nelson had mentioned that Sinatra used the word cinematic. He said, when you arrange mm. these pieces, because the, Nelson's intros were completely original. And yeah. Sinatra wanted him to to paint a picture of the song. So you look at the lyrics, what is the song about? And the intros almost have this, it's, it's almost like a cinematic version of what this is about before the song begins. And Nelson right. had pointed out that that a lot of times old, like average arrangers would echo a part of the song or the la- like the sixth, seventh, eighth bar, they'd echo that. And then they go, but um bum right. bum bum And the singer would come in, but you're giving away the song and said, and Nelson said, I don't, you know, the singers don't like that. They want you have an original song and then Sinatra comes in with the melody. Then everybody applauds like, oh, I know that song. But you don't want them applauding during the intro. Well, Kevin, your intro to every one of these songs is original and beautiful. Uh, the the jingle bells, there's a kind of propulsive energy. You can literally I mean, you said it a moment ago, you're painting pictures, but you can see the guy getting on the sleigh and the sleigh taking off in the intro of that song, you know, and beating, hitting the horse as you go. I mean, it's all there before anybody opens their mouth. Uh, and the Hark the Herald Angels Sing, I tell everybody in my intro now when I do it live, look out for low-flying angels because there's this swooping energy in the arrangement that is so grand and powerful and strong. I mean, it's such a compliment to this music and to my mind, it reanimates it and gets people to sit up and notice lyrics they never heard before. So you're really serving the, the, the song itself and its communication. I'll give you the last word on, on why, why, why this is a lost art, orchestration and arrangement, and the delicacy and the time taken to create those arrangements. Arranging and orchestration go hand in hand. And some people don't know the difference. And I remember reading years ago that the difference between between all three, composition, arranging, and orchestration, is that composition is like, let's say, over here, orchestration's over here, and arranging is somewhere in the middle where you're kind of doing a little bit of both because somebody, somebody created the song first. Irving Berlin wrote the song, so you're taking his melody, but you have to kind of arrange around it and do all these fill in these things, but you're also a little bit of co-composing at the same time. And arranging kind of sort of came around with maybe Stephen Foster when you had these songwriters in the late 1800s writing stuff, but they couldn't really write it for a full orchestra. They could just write the melody. And so that's where the arranger was born. And from one arranger to the next, that's why Christmas music is an amazing example. There's only about 40 to 50 famous Christmas songs that everyone knows. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's thousands, but there's basically 50 that everyone knows. And those are arranged every year. 
and by different arrangers. That's why Buddy Rich's version of Jingle Bells is going to be very different than the Boss and Pops versus Faith Hill versus Metallica. If they're, right. they're all, all four yeah. of them are going to do a completely different version of it because it has to do with their yeah. identity. And, and an arranger has to know if they hire somebody, then you have to know who you're writing for, as we mentioned earlier, and how mm-hmm. it's going to you know, help that the version is so important to what you're writing for the, the orchestra, the singer, whoever you're, you know, doing the arrangement for. It has to have something to do with their identity as well. And that's why, you know, mm. getting this commission with you, it's like, what is what is this going to be about? How can I make it exciting? I got to admit, you sounded great on it. it I've listened to him like, wow. You know, it, it it's you. you make it exciting and fun, and you know that style. It it really is a joy to listen to because you you give so much life to it. Well, Kevin Koska, I am so delighted and honored that you were the arranger and orchestrator on on this album, and and that you know you arrange these songs for me. They made them so beautiful. It was like putting on a well made coat, and they it just fit. I mean, the first time it was played out, I said, "Mike, these are the most beautiful arrangements." So thank you. It's a joy <laughs> singing them. I hope we get to do it again. And uh, Kevin, you can see his amazing work. Go to kevinkoska.com for more of uh, his incredible uh, legacy of work and uh, the breadth of what what Kevin does is is, uh, mind-blowing. Kevin Koska, thank you for being here. Thank you so much. That is all the time we have for now. Be sure to catch us next week. Until then, we'll be scouting the world over for all that is seen and unseen. The World Over Christmas show is next week and a special guest. On behalf of the staff and crew of EWTN News, thank you for watching. I'm Raymond Arroyo. Bye now. 